In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. And increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the Sacrament. Amen. Our first reading from the book of Exodus is very straightforward. The people of Israel have just left Egypt. On the way to Mount Sinai, they're getting very thirsty. Like a teenager on a car trip, they start grumbling to Moses about their thirst. And when Moses brings it up to the Lord God, God tells Moses to strike his staff on a rock to bring forth water. That's what happens, and the people now have a water source for them to drink. Curiously enough, an ancient Jewish tradition is that the Israelites actually kept this rock with them as they continued in the desert, and the rock became something like your office water cooler. Even St. Paul mentions this tradition in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Speaking of St. Paul, our second reading is from his letter to the Romans. He says that since we have been justified, which is a major theme of the letter as a whole, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. This word for gaining access is prosagoge, and it was used in the ancient world to describe being admitted to see the king or to entering a special part of the temple. Royalty in the ancient world hired workers who had the job of vetting and bringing in visitors to enter the king's presence. We still see something like that today. For example, you couldn't just walk up to the White House and ride into the Oval Office. The president hires people to choose who gain admittance. Well, St. Paul says that we have all gained access to God because of Jesus' justification. In our second reading, St. Paul also famously says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Yet there's a debate about this love of God, which we've encountered before on the show. Does St. Paul mean our love of God, or does he mean God's own love? Think of it this way. It's like saying, the love of Fido is great. Am I talking about how Fido, the family pet, loves his family, the love of Fido? Or am I talking about how every member of the family loves Fido, the love of Fido? Getting back to Paul's love of God, since so much of this portion of the letter concentrates on what God has done and his initiative, it seems more likely that we're talking about God's own love here. The love of God is certainly on display in our gospel passage, and it's a lengthy one. It's St. John's account of the Samaritan woman at the well, and there's a bunch of backstory to provide. For one, a quick refresher on the relationship between Jews and Samaritans will help. The Jews saw the Samaritans as second-rate since several centuries before the time of Jesus, they intermarried with the Assyrian conquerors. In addition, the Jews and Samaritans fiercely debated the proper place to offer worship. Samaritans claimed it was on Mount Gerizim, while the Jews held that it was, of course, at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The shrine at Mount Gerizim was destroyed by Jewish troops in about 128 BC, but the debate between Gerizim and Zion continued even into the time of Jesus. Because of this, then, that Jesus is even speaking with a Samaritan is a bit out of the ordinary. And he begins on friendly terms, asking the Samaritan woman for a drink. This clearly takes her aback, as she says, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? At this point in the story, numerous scholars suggest that Jesus broke social conventions by speaking to a woman alone, but other sources of the time indicate that this probably wasn't as rare as some believe. At any rate, Jesus continues the conversation by speaking of how if she knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, she would ask and he would have given you living water. Here we meet the first of this story several comical elements. Just a moment ago, Jesus seemed to have no water and was asking the woman for a drink. But now, 
all of a sudden, he reveals to the woman that he has living water, which he can give her. But there's a double meaning to the fact that Jesus offers living water. Because living water was used to describe naturally flowing water, such as what could be dug up from a well, but also to describe water that is life-giving, this kind only Jesus can provide. As the dialogue continues, Jesus invites the woman to go and call her husband. When she responds honestly that she does not have a husband, Jesus answers her by saying that she has had five husbands, and the one she's with now is not her husband. Here, many people quickly assume that the Samaritan woman is some sort of grave sinner because of her five husbands. But a careful reading of the text on its own, and without interjecting theories about why she's traveling in the middle of the day, gives us no indication of her sinfulness. Neither the author of the story nor Jesus himself ever speaks on the woman's moral state. As you may recall from an earlier episode when the Sadducees posed the ridiculous question of the woman married seven times, it could be that this Samaritan woman is in a Leverite marriage situation where different family members took her as a wife and then passed away in turn. Furthermore, there's some wide speculation about how her five husbands symbolize the five gods of Samaria, or the five nations surrounding Samaria, or even the five books of the Samaritan Pentateuch. But in all, the fact that Jesus points out the woman's five husbands demonstrates above all else that Jesus has a sort of prophetic, supernatural knowledge of her life. After all, that's immediately how she responds to him. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. From there, she tries to get his opinion on the hotly debated topic we mentioned earlier. Where is the right place to worship? Is it in Jerusalem, or is it on Mount Gerizim? In asking this question, the Samaritan woman fully expected Jesus to respond as any Jew would, by saying it was in Jerusalem. But his answer takes her by surprise. He says, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And as he continues, The hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. From there, after revealing to her that he is the Messiah, the one called Christ, the disciples show up and find Jesus talking with the woman. She heads for town to tell everyone about her conversation with Jesus, and as she does, she leaves behind her water jar. Just like the five husbands, there's pages upon pages of theories claiming a symbolism behind her leaving her water jar. But more than likely, it's probably something like when Cinderella leaves her glass slipper at the ball. It's a link to show how the story hasn't ended but expect more to come. The story does continue when the woman tells the town about Jesus and they invite him to stay with them. He stays there for two days and many more began to believe in him because of his word. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this third Sunday in Lent in year A. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.